You know, I was thinking a while ago about that opening theme music, and I realized that, like, there's people who listen to my show, and they probably hear that music, and they're like, yeah, it's time for the show, the same way I do when I hear the Vocal Fries theme song or when I hear the Integrated Schools music or whatever. That's kind of cool. It's not like I composed it. It's like public domain music I downloaded. I don't even know what it is. I guess I'm trying to be like, I'm in hip-hop or something. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, my name is JPB, sorry, Dr. JPB Gerald. I am the host of Unstandardized English, which you are listening to now. This is a show where we talk about the, uh, we seek justice for the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized. If you don't know what that means, keep listening. This week is the fourth and final episode in which I'll be reading a selection from my, at this point, recently released book, Antisocial Language Teaching English and the Pervasive Pathology of Whiteness. I'm going to talk after that with my good friend, Dr. Clara Bowler. We're going to talk about what is a good neighborhood, right? Quote, unquote, good neighborhood, good schools, good places to live, that sort of thing. And you know how that intersects with the work we do around language and society. And it'll tie into themes. Everything's going to tie into themes in my book, right? That's why I wrote the book. But yeah, this will be the last time that I read directly from it. Because at this point, if I haven't convinced you to buy it, you don't think you're going to buy it. Um, I appreciate those of you who have. uh, And anyone who wants to support the show or the work on Patreon, the link is in the show notes. And yeah, I'm going to read from later in my book now because I've been reading like pretty early on in the book and I want to read something a little bit later so that you uh, can hear a little bit about how it goes because I've been reading from the intro section, you know, the intro section where the... uh, I'm explaining all of the ideologies coming together. And I think that's the part that was the hardest to write because it was all, it was all, that wasn't my research, right? Like, I very clearly, I'm showing other people's research and tying it together. And then I bring in my opinions on um, aspects of language teaching. And then I bring in my, uh, where is it? And then I bring in my research in the third chapter. The third chapter was definitely, sorry, the third section was definitely easiest to write because well, I had my research in front of me. And uh, the second section was probably the most fun to write because it's the funniest. And I wanted to read what I think is perhaps the funniest chapter in the book. This is called Criterion 3, right? Remember this book, I'm using the tw- seven criteria from the uh, DSM-5 diagnosis for antisocial personality disorder and mapping each one onto an aspect of language teaching that is connected to whiteness. I know that sounds complicated. If you read the book, it makes sense. Okay. This criterion is impulsivity or failure to plan. Yes. One of the criteria for antisocial personality disorder, which is basically the clinical definition of what people call sociopaths, because sociopath is not a medical You can't be like, oh, he's a sociopath. Your doctor's not going to say that. Uh, One of them is impulsivity or failure to plan. Which, I mean, it's so broad, right? Anyway, here we go. Let's talk about acronyms for a second. Uh, My dog is now bothering me. Sorry. Throughout this book, I've been using ELT, standing, of course, for English language teaching. I use it because despite my views on language boundaries and the definition of what counts as English, I think it's the most recognizable descriptor for the industry and all it entails. In the previous two chapters, I focused a bit on the specific subfield of English as a foreign language or teaching the... Sorry, EFL, or teaching the language in a country where it is not the standardized form of communication. As with any of these acronyms, the EFL faction of the ELT industry has its own foibles and flaws, but they're all tied to the general language. 
language ideologies of the broader field. My own master's degree is in TESOL, an acronym for teaching English to uh, speakers of other languages. For however many decades, the most common acronym when describing the teaching of English to people we would pathologize as non-native was ESL, or English as a second language. However, even before getting into the way this phrase has the potential to subjugate people, it was and remains factually inaccurate for many, because English might well be anywhere from their, it could be their first language, if they have the wrong accent, right? Or their third or fourth language. Nevertheless, even as I write this, promotional materials for the school I currently attend for my doctorate refer to the ESL classroom, and it's still easier to convey my professional background to the unfamiliar by using the ESL acronym. There are efforts to move away from these acronyms, and these efforts largely consist of other acronyms. My very first week of graduate study way back in 2010, I had to memorize and differentiate between EAP, English for Academic Purposes, ESP, English for Specific Purposes, which is ironically a vague name, the aforementioned EFL and ESL, ELF, English as a lingua franca, and others. All of this was coupled with Katru's influential article on world Englishes and the inner, outer, and expanding circles of English. I suspect you will be familiar, but briefly, the inner circle countries are, as referenced in the discussion about online recruitment, the places from which the EFL industry recruits applicants, so U.S., United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, etc. The outer circle is, for lack of a better word, former colonial subjects like India, Singapore, Jamaica, that sort of thing, and the... Expanding circles everywhere else, English has gained a foothold. The class I was taking, which in fact was called English in the World, was making a legitimate effort to help us understand the vastness of the language, but paired as it was with a list of acronyms, the circle framework, in retrospect, elided the power differentials and the history of how the more powerful countries handled themselves linguistically. And I don't really blame my program, which was at the time seen as one of the best around, but the broader field that would prioritize this implicitly hierarchical categorization as foundational to the teaching of the language. There are even more acronyms to contend with, for, of course... In the United States, for example, one way that we have attempted to distance ourselves from the stigma of ESL is to refer to students as ELLs, or English language learners. As you might notice, ELL can be, announced like, can be pronounced like the letter L, and that is indeed how many teachers I've referred to, I've met referred to said students, helping ensure this is a label that's hard to shake because it's just so darn catchy. Additionally, because of the label's relationship to testing, escaping the ELL label can take years if it happens at all. If there are, there are plenty of other acronyms, but the final line I will highlight is the decision to start referring to these students as MLL or multilingual learners, which is indeed which is intended to respect the linguistic repertoire the students already possess, a noble goal indeed. In my own doctoral program, the class where I was first exposed to the work of Flores and Rosa, as, to the, as well as to the concept of translanguaging, had multilingual learners in the title, so I do think that in theory, this is a better acronym. Unfortunately, this acronym, like all of them, has several issues. First, though it's intended to refer to the acquisition of English, a learner who is technically multilingual could still be a quote-unquote native speaker of English. Consequently, as high-minded an acronym as MLL might be, it still places these students in opposition to what Flores and Rosa referred to as monoglossic language ideologies. Similarly, if this label is only applied to particular students who have been screened into certain language classes, then it does nothing to challenge the assumptions and the implications generated by far too many of these acronyms. And therein lies the problem. Whatever three-letter label you create, if it's just a new version of the same classification practice without a direct challenge to those who hold the power, then you're just reshuffling the cards in the deck. In other words, it doesn't really matter what you call people if you treat them the same way you've always treated them. And there's little evidence that our language ideologies have shifted substantially. Policymakers and academics are volleying acronyms back and forth across a rhetorical tennis court while the harm continues unabated, and though the field seems to be aware that something is wrong, as evidenced by its panicked embrace of new three-letter labels every few years, the fundamental status quo remains in place. Along similar lines, Kumaravadivalu has chronicled how the str struggle to generate respect and Equal treatment for non-native teachers has now lasted more than three decades, yet their relative station has only changed in the slightest, which I would submit is 
due to the obstruction by those who are invested in the status quo. The only thing the field seems to notice is optics. So if it looks a little better to refer to your students than most lingual learners while you subjugate them, then you can change the letters on the promotional material instead of the primary. You can change the letters on the promotional materials instead of the primary principles of the practice. Alliteration that I put in this book is very hard to read out loud sometimes. The constant surface relabeling without an evolution or a core value of core values is in fact evidence of the third criterion, impulsivity or a failure to plan. The various tendrils of whiteness that permeate the field are hardly unplanned or impulsive, but what this acronym battle represents to me is a feint towards the fact that although the practice of ELT needs to change, the field is fully unwilling to engage in the work necessary to upend the paradigms in place. This makes sense, as the system is invested in its own perpetuation, and many of the actors within it are most comfortable with the hierarchies that currently exist. But what ELT as a broader entity isn't actually prepared for is the mass of people within it who are hungry for a field that serves different goals. What ELT isn't prepared for is us. I assume if you are reading this that even if you weren't aware of some of the history I shared in part one, you have some sort of connection to language education, be it as an academic or a classroom teacher, a materials writer, a student, or some other role. Either that or you have an interest in whiteness or you're my friend or relative. <laughs> I bring this up to say I don't tend to write to I don't tend to write to attempt to convert those who are diametrically opposed to my work to do what Kendi refers to as moral suasion. I do hope to provide some specific information to those who are either confused or curious, but I mostly preach to the choir, and to be clear, that is by design. When I started speaking out about whiteness and language teaching in early 2019, I expected to receive a powerful, intense backlash. I do experience occasional condescension and dismissiveness, as well as a sort of defensiveness common to any racial discussion with a white audience. Mostly, though. I have been met with either strong support from those who choose to attend my talks and read my articles or notable indifference from those who don't find the topic compelling. All this has left me rather dismayed that the whiteness and language teaching discourse is still rather fresh because there are clearly are many who have valuable insights on the intersection who have yet to be heard. However, this experience has convinced me that instead of what I, what I thought what I assumed I might have to do in expending copious energy on debating opponents, the best way to work against the sort of mindset that would consider acronym generation to be a revolutionary practice is to build with those who align with you against the hierarchies in place. ELT is prepared for any single person who takes issue with one aspect of it. The field will occasionally give an inch, like a professional organization div diversifies leadership, but the fundamental practice remains the same. Even with, say, a special theme, conferences and their attendees largely resemble one another, and journal output is mostly unevolved. English textbooks far outside of the inner circle nonetheless place a higher value on the countries and customs within it. And as mentioned earlier, the, co the uh, conversation about the value of supposedly non-native speakers has barely managed to push the field forward at all. ELT is ready for our piecemeal challenges to our power structure. If it weren't, it wouldn't have managed to achieve its foothold on the world stage through its usage of the insidious practices and conceptualizations that were built to create a pathologized population to which it could market itself. ELT is, however, fully unprepared for a collective challenge to its foundations. Every small, visible adjustment will only satisfy those who feel the field is inherently virtuous and only in need of small reforms. Earlier, I referred to this tendency as the altruistic shield, but what this defensive stance hides is the core belief that we are already on the right path. Ultimately, if no discomfort is felt by the small number of people in ELT for whom the current system not only feels comfortable because of its familiarity, but for whom the hierarchies in place are genuinely beneficial, that is, the people at the top of the pyramid, then what we are asking for and receiving is far too small. And maybe I'm dreaming, but I think we are reaching a point where there are enough of us to make those big statements, to pose those heavy questions, to reach up for the highest shelf if we have any hope of salvaging the humanity of the field that many of us, myself included, have deep and abiding affection for. Yes, that might seem surprising to you for me to say that I have affection for this, but I do love language and language teaching. If I only felt disdain for the practice, I would leave it to its own devices and wish my friends and former students the best, but the fact is we have the opportunity to catch ELT off guard and build a new and better paradigm in place of the one that is intent, stratification, and oppression. 
I want to zero in on a specific example to demonstrate the field's lack of preparedness for the fundamental challenges that are necessary. After the public murder of George Floyd, every industry was forced by the public outrage to engage in sort of introspection, and every such industry was caught flat-footed and unable to respond with agility. For all the issues inherent to ELT, it was hardly the only field unprepared for the demand to acknowledge the value of black lives, so it would be unfair to single out our field for being surprised by the recent uprising. What almost every large organization decided to do was issue a statement affirming their commitment to the cause, a cause that very few of them were able to name explicitly. Elsewhere, our colleague and I analyzed the statements put forth by several professional organizations associated with language education, and we mostly found the statements lacking, with few willing or able to use the word black in referring to the specific acts that inspired the uprising. The only statement that we found particularly productive was one made by a small Brooklyn chocolate company named Raka, which had not only pledged to donate a specific percentage of their proceeds to various causes, but later followed up their pledge with visual evidence of their receipts for having followed through. Now, while Raka was putting their money where their mouth was, quite literally, the professional language organizations were praising themselves for the work they had supposedly already done on racism with the distinct implication that there was little else they should promise to do. One of the organizations whose statement we analyzed was the TESOL International Organization, a U.S.-based but nominally global organization that commands great respect within our field and which many of my colleagues refer to as Big TESOL. They are the equivalent of UK's IATEFL or Japan's JALT, and their words have impact for better... Um, for better or worse. Let's look at an example of when this impact was decidedly worse. Big T-Saw issued a boilerplate statement like everyone else had, and again, since almost every large organization seemed to struggle with this basic task, it would be unfair to single them out accordingly. However, they can absolutely be pilloried for what they did in the aftermath. As many of you are probably aware now, there were a large number of special issues of journals initiated after the events of 2020, both because of the pandemic and because of the d demand for racial justice. Indeed, considering my second journal article was released to the public just a week after Floyd's murder, I suspect that the re part of the reason for my prominence increased was because the field needed to be able to have discussions that have been elusive at that point. That is, I think my work is strong, but I did end up writing a wave of opportune timing. I mentioned all this to say that if Big Chusol had merely commissioned one or several special issues for their journals, it might have seemed a weak response, but it would have been standard for this type of organization. There wouldn't have been much to say. But that's not all Tsol did. About a month into the uprising, Tsol members and social media followers were al alerted to a very special publication released by the organization. I'll let the organization's 2020 president explain. I am pleased to introduce this joint Tsol quarterly Tsol journal publication on a very critical and timely topic, race, identity, and English language teaching. This special issue is the first ever collaborative endeavor of our TQ and TJ editors. It certainly sounds momentous, especially considering the quick speed with which publication was created far faster than almost anything else in academia, until you read the following sentence and you learn precisely what is included. They have curated articles on the topic that have been published in our journals within the last five years to offer in order to support TESOL's statement against racial justice and inequality. Ah. The announcement goes on to praise the overall va the inherent value of ELT as pertaining to social justice and the overall implications that the article selected are proof of how much work Big T Saul has already done to work against racism, but they never use the word racism at all. To be clear, plenty of the selected articles are compelling work, including the Rooker and Ives article on white native speaker online recruitment that I've settled several times in these pages. Indeed, no matter what one may think of organizations such as Big T Saul, there is Always some compelling scholarship being produced and disseminated through its tentacles, and I certainly wouldn't want to lose the work of the authors who published in his journals. Nevertheless, combing through its own archives to find a handful of race and identity articles and then republishing them under a paywall serves only to flatter the portion of the membership that believes in the inherent value of the work. I wasn't in the room when these decisions were made, and they're not going to let me in after this book comes out, but I imagine that there was a strong desire to get ahead of any possible criticism they might receive, though they eventually entrusted a black colleague of mine to help them create a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee, which is, you know, trying. Ultimately, though, 
This slapdash recycled publication that, again, wasn't even accessible to the public is little more than an argument in favor of the status quo that led to the uprising in the first place. Big Chase All is hardly some obscure organization with little influence in the field. They are among the globe's titans, and their influence should not be underestimated. Had they taken an honest look at the hierarchies in which they were and are invested, they might have found a way to make substantive changes, but instead they patted themselves on the back. When I say ELT isn't ready, is impulsive, and has failed to plan for it, this is precisely what I mean. Before I move on, I do want to be clear that the placement of this channel that is essentially an attempt at encouragement in the midst of a few sections that are mostly about various forms of Oh, in the midst of a section on ELT's foibles might seem off, but you will soon see that these first few sentences are mostly about various forms of deceit or deception, whereas the next few several are a bit dark. Whatever one might say about the conceptualization of antisocial personality disorder, the fact remains that it is occasionally used as shorthand for unrest because of its proximity to violence. And so we do need to discuss some of the ways in which ELT isn't just dishonest about isn't just dishonest, but is downright dangerous to the people in its path. Huh, that took a while. Okay, enjoy the episode. Welcome, folks, to Unstandardized English. I'm JPB Gerald. You knew that. You've been listening to me for 15 minutes already. This is the last episode in which I'm reading selections from my book, which means the intro is like 17 minutes long. So you already know what's up here. Anyway, I'm back here with Dr. Clara Bowler. She is a, well, I'll let her introduce herself in a minute, but we, she's been on the show before. You know who she is. Hi, Clara. Hi, I'm so glad to be here, JPB, with you. It's been a while since we talked last, and I missed talking with you. Yeah, you left the country, <laughs> and you came back, and now you live in a different place, or you will. I don't know what the uh, – we yeah. don't have to go into the specifics of the, the day or whatever, like, oh, well, I'll be moving next week or stuff. That's not important. But <laughs> that's what we're talking about, though. Yeah. So it's not incidental. It's not just like what – you know, so like you, you – you, because you left, you have to – you had to move because you can't – it's hard to keep an apartment when you leave. And uh, – then you had to think about where you live, and you've chosen, we can avoid mentioning the specific area, although it's not like people can't figure it out because they know where you work, but, uh, you know, a different area. And then the decisions that go into it, um, some of them are just logistical. You can only be but so far from work. And some of them are, so then within the range of where you can get to work, then one has to choose what makes sense. And I bring this up, and I haven't even let you introduce yourself, but I, I'm making a point here is that when I think about it, and I think it's something that a lot of families don't think about. Like, they just don't think about certain things. They just follow the, they're swimming in the ocean of the thought that they've always had. And so, like, where you raise your kids, like, again, I don't begrudge anybody for living very close to their job. I can't, what am I going to be like? No, you need to live farther from your job. Like, if your job is in X place and you live near that place, I'm not going to be mad at someone for living right next to their job, right? But most people don't live within two, three minutes of their job. So usually people say, I can deal with a commute that's X long, and that length is different per person, right? And I don't really judge anybody who says, I don't really want to live more than half an hour, or I don't want to live more than 40 minutes, right? Uh, but within whatever range you've given yourself, especially in a place like the New York area, which has so many different enclaves and cities and towns you do have a lot of choices not that many because i mean it depends on how much money one has and how expensive areas are but there's still more than a few like there's more than like one place you can live to choose to live to move your family 
And the considerations that go into that as a family that is not majoritized in some ways, but is majoritized in other ways in terms of people's professions and education and so forth, it really matters. And so it's just something you had to think about recently. So now I'm going to actually let you introduce yourself and people. <laughs> no, that was a very good way summary of what's going on. I like that. Uh, so, hi everyone. I'm Clara Bowler. I am a TESOL bilingual professor at Adolfa University. As JPB mentioned, uh, the place where I, I work will matter today. And um, yes, I'm looking. I was looking for a place to live because. We left, I sent my kids earlier to go to school in Brazil because I wanted them to learn Portuguese, which is our family language. And I noticed throughout the years, my kids are now nine and six, that we spoke with them in Portuguese at home. But since since they are not very much exposed to Portuguese uh, outside of, of home, uh, we don't have a lot of bilingual programs like with Spanish, right? If we spoke Spanish, we would have more options. Then I I noticed that um, they have had very few opportunities, you know, just to develop the language in further, right? Not not develop, but engage. I don't want to use like cognitive terms because it's not really about uh, employability or cognition. It's really uh, maintenance. Language maintenance. So once these kids, uh, I think a lot of bilingual, multilingual parents um, go through that. Once they kids go into school, they start losing whatever family um, language they have, and and that goes for any variety, any any dialect or any um, any languaging practices that they engage in because school demands a very specific kind of English too. So not only they lose any other like named language, national language, but also they start uh, looking down upon whatever is going on at home. And then you start uh, uh, listening to corrections, for example, oh, you shouldn't say this, you have to say this, things like that when they start school. And so I was very worried because, you know, I saw that happening and even uh, at home, we have a policy of not correcting each other. And, you know, when kids have parents that speak uh, English as, not as their first language, quote unquote, first language, they correct their parents when they start school. And and I, I always had a conversation with them about that, like how how not nice that is like uh try to listen to understand and every day they say oh we don't correct each other so they they picked on that so i think that all of these things are on my mind it's painful how much i think about that because i said some people do not think about it and i think most people think uh let's say they move to a place because it's considered good quote-unquote school so i did that so initially, when I moved to New York, I went to the Upper East Side uh, because they said, oh, well, over there, they have good schools. And I was coming from California and knew nothing of the city. And then my kids, my my uh, older son went to school there for kindergarten, and it was a terrible experience. Um, it, they said they were diverse. Yeah, the kids looked diverse. But it was so homogeneous, systematic, 
of speaking, like they wouldn't let the kids speak any language other than English in the classroom. They would group like different othering kids in the same group. Like there were some practices that were really suspicious to me. There was no appreciation for any kind of um, cultural, linguistic, racial diversity at all. Although they had a sign like uh, welcoming everyone at school, like a number of languages, right? So the performative signs and the actual practices were not not surprising, right? But but that was very telling to me, like that what was considered a good school uh, to me was not. So so I guess I have been looking all of these years. So my kids moved schools a lot. So now when they entered in this new school district that I knew from my students, because I, I supervise students in school, um, the students kept telling me, Professor Bauer, you need to come to Minilla because here we speak Portuguese. They speak, there is a, a huge European or a Portuguese-speaking community here in this town. It's also Latinx, Hispanic, um, and uh, there's more of a mix. So um, so then I came here to try. <laughs> I, I followed my students' advice. Let's see. I have some former students that are teachers here. So let's see how it goes. That was a useful explanation for people because I think that, <clears throat> you know, I make fun of Long Island a lot on this show and in general because I don't like it. But uh a lot of that is really just bad experiences with both people from Long Island and places in Long Island and people in Long Island talking about the city. In fact, I think that's the number one part is that there's so many people, and let me be clear, white people who live in Long Island and live there because they don't want to live in the city, which fine. But unfortunately, if you just don't want to live here, don't live here. Unfortunately, the way that commerce and so forth work is that many of them work here. Now, let's be clear. If you consistently commute into a place that you hate, right, and you work with the people, the public of that place, it's not good. You know, no, I saw this. I, I saw this a lot at my last job when I worked not for, but adjacent to city workers. I did not work for the city, but I was employed for by a school, like a university, but we were consulting with the city, so most of the people in the physical office were city workers. Now, I'm not talking about them. Some of them were good, some of them were bad, but it wasn't because of this. I'm saying most of them lived in the city. There were requirements about city living to be city workers, and, you know, I think a few lived outside the city, but they mostly lived at the edge of the city. Anyway, but I think a lot of that was his price. But my coworkers, a lot of them lived out of the city. And now we don't need to get into the, the, you know, certain aspects of this, but a lot of them didn't want to come back to the office. And again, I'm not talking about the safety. I'm yeah. not talking about the safety. I'm talking about, and they said that, but a lot of them, it was very clear. They had long commutes and they're like, I don't want to come back in. And I'm just like, all right, fine. But also, what we were doing was supposed to be supporting the people in the city. And I'm not saying you should necessarily have come back in, whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying the people I worked with just didn't like the city. Yeah, I hear that a lot here, too. I think that um, there is a group of commuters. I was part of it. So I lived in Brooklyn. I lived in Harlem. I I moved a lot so that I could mostly because of I was trying to find 
places where my kids would be playing with kids from all around and uh, having not having been exposed because my fear here was for them to be engaged with uh, these ideas and also be seen and uh, being othered right uh, I think that w I think as a parent I'm always worried about the othering that I see happening when I go to schools right when I go as a supervisor as a PD provider I nowadays that I don't teach anymore so I I see that happening a lot there are some districts that I feel like crying when I go because it's just so uh blatant right and and it's a systemic thing uh and it's very common in the city because the city is very segregated and Long Island's the same thing the schools in New York are heavily segregated um and, and and that's so obvious and the and the people keep um disassociating right what they are considered good schools from the communities that they are in but you can't because you know what you're calling good schools is actually white majority schools yep and that matters that matters because you are not naming names. You're not saying <laughs> what's going on. And, and like by design, like I learned with you, teaching with you, that these communities are, uh, uh, the racial makeup of these communities is by design. So I think that disassociating that and saying, oh, they're good schools. They have good tests because most of the rankings are by test scores. Right. Um, which is also doesn't say anything about the community the school community so so then we have to be skeptical of those good schools because they most of the time they don't uh they don't provide uh the community that that a lot of i think parents nowadays are 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 looking for but i have to to say something that might upset people because i i when it comes to schools uh, very liberal, progressive parents, <laughs> they will not put their kids in a school that is not quote unquote considered good in a quote unquote considered good neighborhood. I've experienced that, uh, directly with a project that I was in in Harlem, which was a school that was supposed to join the community. And, um, unfortunately, I see a number of things. I don't want to name names or, but I think it's just, it was evidence to me that the problems are so much deeper and it ha, and they have to do with making sacrifices that, um, like people are not willing to be together or make sacrifices for each other. And I think, this is really sad about New York in general. Maybe the country is a reflection of the country in general, but New York, it, it's very evident in New York how this happens. Well, I think what's, what's bad about it is that it's like, it's not just New York, but the particulars of New York is that more than almost any other city in the United States, if you live in the city, you are forced to see people from different groups. Like, yeah. I don't, I mean, yeah, the, the neighborhoods are segregated, but the subway's not, mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah, COVID, whatever, but I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying in the sense that, like, you could have, if you have all the money in the world, well, not all the money, but, like, if you make 300 grand and you work on Wall Street, you're taking the four train to Wall Street, or the two, 
or the N or whatever. Well, not the N. It doesn't go to. You don't need to hear all this, people. Um, but you know, no one is driving to Wall Street. You're just not. You know, because it's impossible to drive down there, right? And no one is driving to Midtown. Maybe you'll take a taxi if you're lo- if you're behind or whatever. And there's some people who have enough money that they could just like take an Uber every day. I knew somebody like that because they like I have no. Or money take money. an el- helicopter. Right. So. Then when you get to a certain amount of time, but like that's so few people. <laughs> that's so few people that you know. And then like I know somebody in my building who takes an Uber every day. Basically goes to work at like six in the morning. So I'm just like, all right, fine. This one guy. Anyway, so the point is, and I, I really do think specifically the subway, not so much the bus, because obviously the bus is a different thing, and it's usually used where they didn't put a subway or they removed the trolleys yeah. and so forth. But, like, you know, everybody's on subway. And I know people say, well, not right now. Stop. Um, and you walk, right? You yeah, walk and right it's just a walking city, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, it's designed that way. And it's one of the reasons yeah. that every time I think about leaving, I'm like, but then it's going to be driving everywhere, and I don't want to do that. That's I, what I'm facing uh, now, right? Right, now. Exactly. exactly. I don't. I don't want that to be what I do to 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 function. I have a car and I don't like it, but I'm fine with how we use it, which is we use it on the weekend when we want to go somewhere that we can't take the subway to. If we could take the subway, we're taking the subway. If we can't, like we're leaving the city, or the ang- like the direction doesn't make sense, like it would take so much time on the subway because the subway would go this way and whatever. Then fine, we'll drive, or we're going to Connecticut or something. Anyway, but. I think the contrast between the fact that you really do come into contact, you pass people from different groups so much more often here than you do in an L.A. or or in Atlanta or I'm just naming places where people drive everywhere. And I'm not, I know that there is public transportation there and then obviously it's segregated because the people who can't afford cars usually have to take the bus. Yeah, blah, blah, that's blah. exactly what happens. Right. But it's still not nearly as comprehensive as this. Like even the only one place I can think that's as comprehensive as this transportation wise is Chicago. Because Chicago's trains run. And San Francisco, too. San Francisco, too, but there's so many fewer trains in San Francisco. And, and also, they run less it's often. expensive now to live there. Right, so yeah. San Francisco is like yeah. New York, but it's smaller, so there's, like, it's yeah. all, if, if the five boroughs of New York were Manhattan, that's San Francisco. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Manhattan is physically, forget about the price, it's just physically small. Yeah. Like, it's just not mm-hmm. large. It's the smallest county in the United States. So mm-hmm. there are, as expensive as it can be, there's physically a lot of like this, this is just a, it's a physically large city like physically you know and because people take like most people take subway to work or school or whatever i mean unless you live near it uh you have to see people so the fact that you do have to see people and it's still segregated is is the contrast like i'm not surprised that in car places things are segregated because people will get in their car and not pay attention yeah. you know and I, that's what, that's exactly what I see in a Long Island is that like people drive everywhere. So they stay in the community that they just drive to go store, drive home, drive to work, whatever. And then they don't have to see people from different groups, right? The segregation in New York is racial, but it's, 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 you know, a lot of it's class really. It's really, can you afford to live in this area more than anything yeah. else? Um, it's just that obviously class and race can't be separated. Um, so then you get to a Long Island and you have people who have, decided to separate themselves even more, but they still are responsible for the education or safety or whatever of the people in the city. And, sure. and that's so, yeah, that's there's like, so much, right? That, that power. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's so much in Long Island, especially Nassau, not so much Suffolk because it's farther, but especially Nassau 
and this is a stereotype, but it's not untrue, is that how many homes there is it like is the dad a cop and the mom's a teacher and they both work in New York City, but they live in Long Island. And so they come in like, oh, we're going to go to this jungle with the animals. And now they, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but I'm not really exaggerating. Uh, and then I'm going to come home to my safe area that I love. Right. And then they say, oh, that town over there. You know, and I can't remember which towns are black and which towns are white and Hispanic and Long Island. And but here, yeah. for example, we have Hempstead. There you go. That's, that's one black, that I couldn't remember. A black town. Yeah, I thought so, but uh, I wasn't sure. Right, right side by side to Garden City where right. I work, which is a white town. Right. And we are always talking about this in education because we're saying, wow, this is really a, con- a huge contrast. And then we have other... And this, I mean, I think that's just, I mean, that's not just Long Island, that's just suburbs. Uh, yeah, because, suburbs. you know, because the, the suburbs overall, if you add up all the population in the country, are actually not homogenous. It's just that this town will be homogenous and then this town will be homogenous, but it's black or Hispanic or whatever, mm-hmm. right? You just don't have that many individually diverse suburbs. The sub, like, if you add up the whole population of suburbs around the country, it's pretty mixed, but it'll be like white town, black town, white town, Hispanic town, whatever, whatever. Like yeah. You see that in, in Westchester because we thought a few times about living there and then like, you know, what are the, the black towns or things like Yonkers and, and Mount Vernon and then in between the two was like Bronxville, mm-hmm. right? You know, where Sarah Lawrence is. So, you know, and, and it's, it's stark because it's not just that black people live there, not just black people, but a lot of black people, but then like they just don't have any resources or they've been mm-hmm. denied resources. You know, they don't, they hardly have parks. So if we were to live in Mount Vernon, this is what yeah. I, this is the conversation we're having. We've thought about, we, every month or so, we're like, maybe we should move to this place. And then we think about it and we like go over there and we're like, we have, we always have a nice afternoon because we like hanging and out with them. And you think about this, so going back to schools again, so the schools in Hampstead are undersourced. Yeah. We know that. That's why we have a huge, uh, uh, we have tried to work multiple times with Hempstead District and the, uh, by, na- by, by, by nature of the system, um, uh, historically, also the turnover there is, so we, we start talking with a group of people and then the group of people is not there anymore. But I think that it's getting a little more, we're trying to come in, but then COVID happened. But, but the, but you're right that from, of the schools in the area, Hampstead will have more undersourced schools. You see that it's, it's, it's visible. It's evident. And, and, and it's really like disgusting because we know that we know we, we are like, what was this still happening? Like the, the segregation, the undersourcing, lack of funding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that uh, when I, when I hear people saying, Oh yeah, we leave, it's over. Why are you moaning over this? It's over now. Racism or segregation is over. No, we just go and visit the schools. And you will see the same thing happens in the Bronx. So the Bronx is the most over, undersourced uh, borough in, the, in terms of the schools. So yeah. we talked with a uh, superintendent uh, in, in the Bronx because we're pre-COVID again. We talked with him about partnering uh, too because universities have these, um, sometimes we apply for grants and things like that. And he said, I really need this because I don't have, I, right now I don't have any after school programs. 
here to offer the kids. And you think about it, and it's still happening. So, um, yeah, it's pretty visible. So, in terms of the subway, uh, when we were talking about this, so one thing that I made a commitment of is to enroll my kids in a program in the city at least once a week, and I kept all of their doctors and stuff in the city so that we can get the subway, we can get the train, we can get, we can go to the city once a week so that they are uh, living in the city too. So I, I, I was worried about that too. Let's see how it goes. I mean, I am, I, I am also someone that does not support driving in general. I don't have a car now. We will try to make it without a car. So our place is very close to walking distance to the train station and, um, and we can get an Uber if we need to. But let's see in the winter how it goes. But I think that I'm trying and I'm trying, I'm all, I'm painfully thinking about this all the time too, because I, I do, I agree with you that I do feel that what the children are exposed to matters, right? And we, we talk and they, they observe, they are immersed, they make friends with uh, people, right? They are not afraid of talking with you. They are afraid of asking questions. Because what I see it too is like when a child grows up very uh, secluded, right? In the in a place, let's say, that is very homogeneous, then they will be afraid of, of, of going outside of that. Or they will think that that's all there is, right? Of the world. And they will make assumptions um, about other places other people uh, that do not look like them or do not do the same things that they do. So I think that that's so important to you. It's, it's so, hard. It's hard to be a parent. <laughs> I, I you know, because I think this is directly related to, because like, so the Bronx, just as an example, Bronx, Mount Vernon, <laughs> same idea is, um, you know, we think about what do we want our son to see? Because right now he's in daycare. He likes his daycare, but it's not like he's had any comparison. Uh, yeah. We like it too, and we want him to stay in it. He is the only black kid, but there, it's a very mixed group. So he's the only one, like, he doesn't know what black is yet, but like, he's not the only one with brown skin. He is the only one who, like, as, you know, like literally would be included in the group of black people. And I'd like him to have more experience in, in groups that actually have more black people. My neighborhood does not have a lot of black people. So here's the thing about it is when you look things up, that's why you have to go spend time in a place to know. Because if you look up our zip code, the demographics actually do include a fair amount of black people. Um, it's actually, yeah. I think it, in order it goes white, sorry, it goes Asian, white, Hispanic, black, right? In the order in our, in our, dem in our neighborhood. But that's the zip code. It's a big zip code, right? Mm -hmm. And, then you look at it more granularly, there's a public housing project inside the zip code, and that's mm -hmm. where all black people live. <laughs> and I'm not saying that to be critical of black people, I'm just saying that you have to... How... That's why the demographics... Well, right, so, so if you look, so I'm saying, and that's not necessarily the, the fault of the, like, if you look up a zip code and look up the demographic, that's not anyone's, that's just, like, what are you going to do about it? Just carve, carve them out of the zip code? Right. But that means like if I don't live in a place and I'm trying to get a feel for it and I look up official statistics and even I know the statistics can be harmful. But in this case, this is just descriptive, just information like you got to go and see how a place is, because if you look 
even more specifically, like, there's, like, no black people in this neighborhood. I mean, you still see, the thing about New York is, you still see them walking down the street because there's people everywhere, right? Maybe they people work here, right? Maybe they, you know, maybe they live in the next neighborhood. But people, and this is an area, there's a lot of subways. So, like, you know, people are going to pass through. So, like, you wouldn't, this is not an area where I'd look around them and I wouldn't see anybody ever who's black. They may not live, they like they don't live here, but, like, this is an area people pass through. And so I, we say to ourselves, well, maybe, you know, maybe we should move into an area that has more black people, right? Um, and so we consider that a lot. Where, you know, we go back and forth on it. We go, maybe we'll move to this part of the Bronx. Maybe we'll move to, to Mount Vernon. Maybe we'll move to the area of Brooklyn that I grew up in, right? And before, without even considering the, like, how much would it cost to do X, Y, and Z, like, we're only including areas that we could afford to live. So it's not... You know. That's the thing, because now the prices are so expensive. And I'm thinking of, sorry for cutting you, JPB, but you made me think about now that I came to look for an apartment and I wanted to go back to the city. And I was in Harlem. I wanted to go back to Harlem. but And I love Harlem. Harlem is a great place. Um, I loved living there. And um, in, in in the community, the, the Black community is amazing. Um, but the thing is, uh, gentrification is real. Uh, Harlem is highly, being highly gentrified. And Brooklyn, the same thing. I stayed in Brooklyn to, when I was looking for an apartment. And I was joking with, uh, the receptionist of my hotel who, who is black and from Brooklyn. And I was saying, wow, um, it's impossible to live here. Uh, and she was saying, yeah, my, my landlord is, um, is probably going to increase the head rent and I'm going to have to move out of the home, uh, neighborhood that I grew up in and I don't I don't drive because we were talking about driving right so most people that live in the city don't drive and it's a, and it's both a choice but it's also cultural in terms of cultural practices right you don't drive cuz you don't have to and you are fine with taking the subway you don't like traffic and it's just a city life and, and, and there are so many implications of pushing people out of where they live. Uh, this is just a, a minor one, but like people are being pushed out too. So if, especially the black community is being pushed out of places like Brooklyn, Harlem, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that, uh, this is also concerning. Yeah. So many- There's a lot of people being pushed out. And then we also, because we're not poor or anything. So what are we also going to be? gentrifying a place if we were to move there yeah. i don't think it's necessarily gentrifying if i move back to the area i grew up in oh yeah but uh but i'm i'm talking about for example if you want your child to be in a black community a thriving black community uh they might be be, be pushed out well right that, yeah that, happening. That, yeah how <laughs> many how many thrive thrive how many communities are allowed to be black thriving and then yes. not gentrified Exactly. That's exactly my point. I think that once you start thriving, then uh, then it becomes gentrified. So well, I mean, I, th- I think it's like the the modern version of back in the day when we would thrive, they would just bomb us. They don't really do that anymore. They just they just come. Yes. They're like, oh, I'll just come live there, and yes. then you and then you have to leave. I mean, like this is this is the the modern version of Tulsa. Right? Exactly. They're like, oh, they're, they're, exactly. they're succeeding, so I'm going to go be there. 
and then I'm going to add a, you know, whatever. Like there's, I'm not going to be mad that there's a Starbucks there, right? It's one, it's, I don't know first per se what was there before the Starbucks. I can't say for a fact that like there used to be a black owned coffee shop and it got pushed out. Like I, that's not true in every single case, right? I don't know what was there. I maybe, think it's maybe more it's about a, the apartments, right? Not yeah. About business. It's more about the apartments. You, you, you renovate the apartment and you charge. $3,000 to $35,000 for one bedroom, then who can afford that? <laughs> right. And it's like this, we were thinking like, well, clearly, because we live in an expensive area, if we were to move over to X place, it'll be cheaper. And like, buy like $200 a month. So how much money does it cost to move? Well, you already gave that money back. You know, you know, we, we only think, we think about moving for cost sake, not because we can't afford this, but because we would like to save more. We have money, but we'd like to save more. But it's not going to be worth it if, like, if we were to move to a certain place that's, you know, a little bit cheaper for rent or or even if we were to put, you know, depending on what money we have for a down payment or whatever. But, like, but it's not that much cheaper. The only, you know, it's, like, a little bit cheaper. And then we have to spend more money on driving and more money on this. Yeah. And it adds up. And, like, you know, I don't think that... Like, in a weird way, the cheapest thing for us to do, despite how much we're paying in rent, is to not move because moving costs so much money. And, so much. And then I'm you have to do all this stop. stuff when you get there, and then you got to find a new doctor, find a new this, find a new that, find a new that, right? And so, like, the opportunity cost of doing it. So then I'm in this position where, like, my kid is in a neighborhood where there aren't that many black kids. However... I have ensured that this child loves the subway, so we just go everywhere, and he certainly does not see it as unusual to be around a lot of black people. And so I feel like that's, at least for now, the best I can do with this sort of consideration, because, like, it makes me sad when I have friends who will tell me how much they believe in the stuff that I'm saying, right? White friends I'm talking about. I'm not... As much as I don't personally agree with it, I'm not going to begrudge any black person who moves into a white neighborhood. Like, you know, go take care of yourself. Well, because it's, 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 it's so hard. I think that, like you said, it's systemic, right? So what you, what you said to me is at the heart and the core of everything. Um, black communities are not allowed to thrive. Right. And, and I think there is really a difference when we, and not just black, but any, any you know, minoritized group is, you know, if, you're, if your family is a, able to get a leg up, just to move, just do what you need to. Yeah. I'm telling the people who already have the societal power, even if they personally don't believe they have power, they have the societal power. If you need to not, I'm not saying go live on the street. I'm saying you don't need to take that extra step. Right. You don't need to put that kid in Kumon on New Year's Eve. And I, I say that a lot because on New Year's Eve, I was walking my dog and I saw kids in Kumon. And I'm like, let the kids. It's New Year's Eve. Leave the kids alone. One day. <laughs> it's a holiday. I know it's technically the holiday is technically New Year's Day. But like, just leave the kids alone. They don't need to be in Kumon on New Year's Eve sitting in there and their sad little oh, mask. <laughs> right. Like, I'm not saying they shouldn't be wearing a mask. I'm just saying, but they're sitting there. And then it's just, anyway, you don't need to do this with the kid, right? Kumon is not, it's, I don't care if Kumon people don't like this because I don't like them, but Kumon is not, my kid has a, a particular need and I need extra support. I don't, again, although 
you know, the fact that these services are only available to certain people is a problem. If my kid, if Ezel, and I don't think it's impossible, if he ever had some intellectual need that I can't meet, you do what you can for your kid. But then there's, there's like, you don't need to do the extra because your kid's probably going to be fine. You know, most kids, especially majoritized kids, will be fine. Uh, and. Yeah, but the, the system is so. Uh, I don't know. That's why I'm so skeptical, G. Well, you just have to, you just have to, they have to, people just have to opt out of this, this stuff. Like, they have yeah, to say, I'm not going to do it. we have to collectively become aware that this is not good, healthy, or just, we need to get together and just say no. But I think it's so hard because I, I see that. I've been in that position. And I've been with parents in conversation with parents uh, about this so many times. And what happens is that when it comes to school choice, where you're gonna put your kid, that's where that's where the 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 whole uh, uh, systemic racism, all of these perpetuates. That's that's the decision. If we really wanted to, for example, look at Brooklyn, right? I I I think Brooklyn is a good example because it's uh, it's been so heavily gentrified right now. And instead of the parents that are gentrifying, come on, you could say no. You know, you have you have political power. You have so get together. Why are you are you not? Fighting for your schools to be an example of community. I, 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 I'm so sorry to say, but I passed like some community there. I'm not going to name names, but I passed there and the school is beautiful. It has a garden for all of the kids, like plant to plant, like tomatoes, whatever that they do in the school, but it's a white majority school. In a historically black neighborhood, and you will make the school better, facility-wise, right? But you push people out. So why are you not fighting for this not to happen? It's also you. You are responsible for it. If you are there in that neighborhood, you are responsible for that, too. Everybody is. So I don't know. I think I see. I don't know. I I I am teaching like. Um, about Brown versus Board of Education, on which I have so much to learn, but I'm seeing this all over again in a different way. I like, mean, you know, when I think about this stuff, like, I was reading an advice column. I read a lot of advice columns. I don't know why. I find them interesting. But, like, the, the quote-unquote problems that people have, like, seems so obvious and straightforward to me that, like, If you're writing into an advice column to say things like, my mom is racist, I don't know what to do, then of course you're not going to be able to make the choice not to take every, you know, extra advantage. Like, that to me is such an easy decision. I didn't say it's not hard emotionally to have to distance yourself from a relative. But like, it's not complicated. I mean, again, unless you're, like, financially dependent, blah, 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 but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you're an adult person with kids, and you realize that your relative is saying some shit, 
And yeah. that's not the type of stuff you want your kids to hear. You know enough to know it's fucked up, so you're writing into the advice column. And the advice columnist always says, you need to protect your kid from this shit. And, yeah. you know, and so it's just, yeah. And then, you know, if people are at that point where they're like, I just, my mom, I just, I just, well, then there's no way they're going to make the actually difficult decision to opt out of what all of their friends and people in their circles are doing with tutors and so forth. Because I think a lot of this is public perception. You know, the kids, a lot of the time, they do it because they're told to do it or they do it because all their friends, they're like, oh, yeah, I go to tutor school or I go to the Kumon on Thursdays, you know, and their friends also go to this and they go to this and they go to their... I just remember two two years ago or last year. I don't know. Sometime it, uh, late enough, in, like enough time had passed in the pandemic that I was out doing stuff, but I can't remember. It wasn't this year. I believe it was maybe May of 21, something like that. And I was sitting in an outdoor cafe with my dog and uh, someone was having a work call also, which whatever. And she was basically a, like, get-into-college consultant type, right? She was, like, she was young. She was, like, 23. So and I don't want to be this person, but clearly this was, like, a place that hired, like, and this is of all genders, like, attractive people to be on their posters. <laughs> <laughs> because this person, you know, was going over all the things she'd need the high school student to do and how they would make sure that they had the best whatever, whatever. And, like... I didn't hear the high school student side of the conversation, obviously, because it was a phone call, right? Or it was a video call, but it was not public. You could only hear this person. But, like, this is so much work that they're doing. And it's all so that they – it. I have to close this off in a second because we both have to, like, do our jobs. But to me, the end of this is I went on a vacation – four years ago, and I was at this hotel, and I think I was just sitting there reading by myself one day, and I I don't remember where my wife was, but she wasn't with me at that moment, and there was two older, not older, maybe 50s couples, and and these were Canadians, so this wasn't an American issue, Uh, and they were both talking about their kids, adult kids, right, and they were literally, you could tell that these people were comparing how successful their kids were. Oh, yeah. You could tell that, you know, this one person was like, oh, he does. I don't remember what the kids did. I didn't care. But, you know, it's like he does (laughs) X, Y, and Z. And she, you know, she used to teach, but now she stays home, which is such a thing. Right. You know, go be a teacher for two years and then you can be a mommy. Right. Um, And then and then the other one goes like, oh, my son. Yeah, he does. He does very well. Very well. And they were just like, it was just like, just just it's all about that. Right. You got to be the better family. You need to be better than you're not you're not in community. And there is so much about that that is just is that what you want to be as a society? I think that's what we want to ask ourselves. We cannot just say that we want something and I I keep telling my students that too. I'm like you cannot just say something and not do it, right? And you and and it's and that haunts me as a parent because I want to be able to, as much as I can, to be able to be honest, like 
and, and, and try to do, try, because, of course, we are up against a whole system that is not built to value the experiences that the children bring, who they are, diversity in general. So, for example, even now, my kids um, were uh, learning Portuguese, right? And they were in school and they learned to read and write in Portuguese. But does that matter to the system here? No. But all their struggle and experience that they went through, it was so much, it was so rich in their lives, and both bad and and good and then they come here and they're like a blank slate right so do you know how to read and write in english do you know how to read at this level do you know how to write at this level oh they might repeat or they might you know it's all of these uh, uh, uh measures of uh very limited measures of who children are and can be and we are not thinking of the the quality of the experience that they need to have every day to be able to be a better human being with others and community in the future if we want to to be who we are saying we want to be in the u.s and then we start getting skeptical because then we say you know what you're not doing you're not building a path to what you are saying you want to be, right? So let's say diversity, right? You're not building a path towards that. So we're all we all know that this diversity is not really real. It's just lip service. So I think that it's very hard. It's very hard. I, I hate to end in this talk, but it's I, I still think it's very hard. I I don't know I don't know what you do. Just keep trying. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe people buy my book they uh they'll, they'll learn <laughs> their book will help yes they will learn because the end of the book but the also the conversations the community uh we need to we need to be able to get together have these these conversations talk about what we really want and if we're and if we're willing to make the sacrifices that it takes right because nobody at the end nobody wants to lose anything nobody wants to feel right that they are losing stuff they want to be at the top and right. compare their yeah, that's, kids. That's it. Yeah. That's what they call it. It's people are people are more concerned about loss avoidance. Yes. Right. And so you avoid loss by making sure everyone else is worse than you. <laughs> yes. So true. And the, what, the whole school system is is like that. Is built to be like that. So it's. it's and I'm saying, and it's it's, it's documented. People, psychologically, people are more motivated by avoiding loss than they are about seeking the the win. But the seeking, but they still frame it as seeking the win because they're really just trying to avoid losing. Anyway, so this conversation can't end. Uh, it's just yeah, we can't. You know, it's never gonna just end. But uh, thanks for for joining me for it, and uh, I hope people listening really start to think about this whole good neighborhood thing. Now, look, the fact of the matter is people who listen to me are already going to be people who think about this sort of thing. So maybe share it with somebody who moved their kid to a quote-unquote good neighborhood and explain to them why you're not friends with them anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You have a good day, Dr. Beller. You too. Thank you, Misha. Thank you all. All right, bye.